here's the one mistake I made in doing all this though. So naive on the back of every bag in the first run, I wanted to get that. So I had I, uh, an email address that went directly to me. Uh, so I had my own and then I had like a hello at, and I put a Google phone number that was like 802-828-RIND, which called my cell phone, forwarded to my cell phone. And I was like, what could, what could possibly go wrong? And it was effectively like putting your direct number and your email on every bag and then expecting, you know, the occasional complaint or compliment or whatever. That was a wild time. I had to change phone, I had to like change my phone number, divert this. And I was like, I still wanted to read every consumer email that came in. And I am a big believer in founders making sure they do that. So they're not, you know, they're not unaware of any blind spots, but phone number, do not do that. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast brought to you by Propeller Industries. Propeller is the leading strategic finance and accounting partner for venture stage companies. On this show, we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. And if you're enjoying the show, subscribe on YouTube or whichever platform you're listening on. That would really mean a lot. And if you want the full experience, check out the newsletter at theconsumervc.com. You can subscribe to receive all the fundraising updates from the past week in consumer, and as well as emails about when a new episode is dropped. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Thank you, Brett Simon, for the introduction to our guest today, Matt Weiss. Matt is the co-founder and CEO of Rind Snacks. Rind Snacks makes craveable whole fruit snacks. We discuss the inspiration behind creating a brand and a product that focuses on the peels of a fruit, how he first got into retail, an encounter, a chance encounter at an exhibit that changed his brand's uh, trajectory and much, much, much more about his approach to building Rind, including why he was part-time with it for two years, what was kind of the moment that he switched to doing it full-time. This is a really wonderful story about, about his approach for building Rind. Without further ado, here's Matt. Matt, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Psyched to be here, Mike. I'm doing great. Snowy weather outside, but it's uh, warm and toasty in my WeWork, so I'm ready to roll. Oh, that's good. I'm glad that it's I'm glad that it's warm and toasty in your in your WeWork. I'm in I'm in LA, so always <laughs> all, always sunshine. Always sunshine pretty much. Um well, let's start at the beginning. What 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 got you into finance and why did you decide to leave finance after being in finance for over two decades? Like a lot of people at age 20, 21, when you're graduating college, uh I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't want to sleepwalk into a a career uh, just because especially with a decision I'd made at that age. Um, I honestly think people graduating should have a ton of exposure to lots of different things before they pick a career. So what I did know was I loved, I loved the cre creativity of, um, and the power of ideas and creating something out of nothing but a concept in your mind that tapped into a big idea. So I had my first taste of entrepreneurship in college and I was also taking the LSATs at the same time, again, back to that sleepwalking into becoming a lawyer. And instead I gravitated toward the open-ended, you can kind of do anything, chart your own course of business and finance. And I knew I, after school, I wanted to really build and develop the skills of how commerce works, right? How do uh, businesses evolve from you know, the early stage to becoming an established, you know, entrenched business with competitive advantage and moats and all that stuff. And what does it take to get there? Because all brands start at zero, but, you know, zero has given rise to Nike and Coca-Cola, but they were zero in the beginning. And I just wanted to understand that. And I ended up at a mutual fund right out of school. And I had a front row seat to amazing entrepreneurs and founders that were raising capital for their businesses. And that got me hooked. That's awesome. That's really cool. And so why, well, I mean, in college, so what was like the, the, the business that you actually did start? Yeah, so I had no technical skills. <laughs> I still don't. 
Um, but it was the time where, and I'm dating myself, but Napster came around. This was like the late 90s and the ability to just <laughs> pirate any song uh, through a T1 internet connection of colleges was like uh, a bold new frontier. And it gave rise to all these dorm room entrepreneurs. And it was individuals who grew up at the dawn of the internet that were coding, that were in computer science labs, engineering, and they lacked the professional bridge to actually raise capital for their businesses, be taken seriously, uh, avoid a lot of pitfalls because they were, they, they could easily be taken advantage of, but have some incredible skills. And what our initial concept was when I was still a college senior was uh, to develop a dorm room incubator, a college um, conduit, if you will, for students that were grinding away on really unique technologies that were happening on campuses and helping them graduate, as we like to say, from the dorm room to the boardroom. And that was an amazing, that was like a business school experience for me, the year and a half that I ran that. That's awesome. Because it, it, it also seems like maybe like a little bit ahead of uh, ahead, ahead of its time, because a lot of like the universities now have like have like their own incubators and also like VC funds, for example, have, I think there's like the, the dorm room fund that, um, that, that our first round capital, um, uh, uh, does, um, as well. So that's, that's super cool. That's awesome. I think we were in a window where we were, um, I like to say probably looking for like Mark Zuckerberg at Harvard when he was probably in like second grade. Or somewhere, somewhere in middle school, and it was just like, man, if we had kind of synced up that timing a little bit more, um, would have been different. But nevertheless, I found my way from finance to fruit. Um, you know, somewhere along the way, finance to fruit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about like maybe some of the inspiration behind Rind, and as well as the timing of it in terms of why you started it when you did after you know. Um, two decades of finance. I know that your great grandmother was a huge inspiration um, for you and the reason why you started your company. But talk to me a little bit about Thalma, like also from a well. Obviously, would love to hear about her and and why she was such a great inspiration. But also as well as why you decided to do this. You know, when you were kind of mid career after um, after two two decades in finance. Yeah, right. I think it, they call it the seven year itch. And if after twenty years, it was like three seven year itches. Uh, and I needed to. I needed to pay attention to that. And I am a big believer in, you know, there's, you can be an entrepreneur and reinvent yourself at any point in life. And age is, is not a constraint to, for creativity, for risk taking, for expanding your network and horizons. And, and um, you know, that, that notion of continuous learning as trite as it is, like that happens at every age. And I am naturally curious. Um, I loved what I was doing for those 20 years. I had, again, like I was meeting with incredible uh, owners of businesses that had gotten to the ultimate, um, you know, stamp of approval where they they become public companies. And here I was listening to them talk about the businesses they were running, the opportunities, the challenges. And then I'd go back to my desk and try to model out and predict, wow, where's this company going to be in five years? And what are the trends and what will profitability and margins? And I realized in that, in that exercise after 20 years that I didn't know anything practical. I knew theoretical how businesses and uh, became good stocks, but I didn't understand how ideas became businesses in all the messy middle that happens, that's not glamorous, that's not talked about that separates fast growing surviving companies that become durable from the 80% of the other businesses that don't make it after two years, three years. And I knew I needed to roll up my sleeves and learn some of that if I ever wanted to, you know, understand what it meant to be an operator of a business. And so on nights and weekends, I was moonlighting starting in 2017, I, I decided to scratch that itch. And I was at the time covering the food and beverage industry for the funds. I gravitated to that because of my great grandmother and a healthy 
sort of halo in our family of, of um, whole foods and, and nutrition. And that's where I found my tribe. I fell in love and it wouldn't let go. And I decided I had to throw my hat in the ring. What were, I love, I love the, how you kind of phrase that in terms of, um, in terms of the skill sets that, that you've learned um, through finance. One of them wasn't, you know, how do you actually take an idea and form it into a business? And you know, you know, roughly, okay, these are maybe good, like a great margin profile for like this business or whatever. But like, if there's even like a bad margin profile, like what's the reason why it's bad, right? Like, why, like how do we, how do we actually get to that point? And I would say, and so I guess my question is, and they, when you actually founded Rind and you uh, were starting to, you know, build the, build a business yourself, what were some of the biggest surprises from the very beginning that, that you found with it, with, with turning your idea Rind into, you know, a, a full-fledged business? Yeah. I mean, it's one of the biggest, you know, eye-opening takeaways in the beginning was just how, when you're shaping an idea and it, the idea doesn't exist, you're willing something into existence, the zero to one, the market will not tell you what you need to know. You have to tell the market how this product should be positioned, how it should be priced, why it needs to exist, and what are, you know, what is its future? And there's no analog for it. And so little things that are so basic, like what do I price at? Right? Is that's on you to figure out. And there's no science to it. I mean, you want to be do your research, understand and not come out way above market or below market so you can't be profitable. But that was amazing when I when I first developed and got line time and built a 1200 units of, of fruit snacks, one, you know, pallet run. And then all of that product showed up to my apartment building in New York a week later from a, you know, a, a delivery truck in California. Uh, I had to move this product. I had zero customers and I had a whole lot of motivation. And I took it to the first bodega, you know, in my neighborhood that was like my favorite spot. And I told them I had this awesome new fruit snack. It's just lighting the world on fire. It wasn't anywhere yet. And uh, I dropped off samples everywhere. And one of them called me back and they said, we'll take six cases. How much is a case of, how much the case cost? And I was like, I forgot to figure out what I should price this at. I was like, so surprised I got the call like, okay, we like your stuff. We'll take it. Like what? Okay. Uh, I mean, pen to paper, understand. I knew my unit economic. You would think someone with a finance background would have thought that through, but I was so focused on like getting a product into market and learning how to sell um, or just create and then figured out, okay, here's how to shape the foundation of like a financial model that can work. Yeah, I mean, what's what I think is really interesting about that about that story too is that I think that it it seems like at least, you know, you thought it would take a few more runs on the sales side to actually get the first sale, where it's like, okay, like let's just like build this muscle, build this sales muscle, and actually get to you know go to uh, bodegas, whatever. But it seemed like you know like the first one you actually close, which is amazing. It's like, okay, what do you actually then do next um, when it comes to actually pricing it? Because you thought it would be like a lot longer in terms of getting it. So you kind of had maybe a bit more time. What I did know, it's exactly right, was that as soon as I got that first yes, the adrenaline rush was like nothing. Yeah. Like nothing else I'd ever felt. And th that was like a drug. I was like, let's rinse and repeat and get this product that I gave rise to, that I love, that was like an extension of me and my story into the world and into consumers' hands. It had a real functional story. We can get into it about why the rind. And that's where I started to feel like I had tapped into something given how quickly I was getting feedback that was consistent and similar to how this all started for me, which is a great grandmother who shared her her real, you know, timeless wisdom with me about the power of the peel. Uh, it's really cool. So I learned quickly that having a product that has low, you know, barrier to education 
where people really kind of get it intuitively and it's not some newfangled thing that they they've never seen before but it's a new twist on something that's familiar but still novel that felt really good would love to expand on the story and, and talk a bit more about the uh, about the product as well because then we kind of like jumped here in terms of like the sales and the kind of and kind of how you actually were able to get into retail uh, or your first real sale shop which is awesome um talk to me a little bit about like like, like the, the the bit of like the origin story in terms of why you felt so compelled to actually find rind um why it was why you felt like it was different or 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 maybe a um a part of the fruit that is underappreciated that has a lot of value um and also like where you learn where you learn that from yeah i think there were like a lot of cross currents that i was paying attention to when i was an analyst and while you know the product came together and I had to figure it out very quickly. There was a lot of thought I put into making sure there were some really good tailwinds and I was going to be tapping into a growing market or be on the right side of, you know, generational change, seeking a product like this or snack like this. And that's exactly right. What was really abundantly clear to me was that dried fruit, it's like the original snack had been around for thousands of years. Uh, but what it, Unlike a lot of snacks, it really didn't evolve. Um, you know, yes, you had raisins and you had a little bit of dried mango, but it was still raisins and figs and dates and everything from like, you know, the Middle East where they grow and, and dehydrate beautiful fruit. But there had been no new innovation around the types of fruits, a focus on the functional benefits of certain parts of the fruit that are often discarded. And all it was was the epiphany of like, bring a new twist to a classic snacking category that's always been one ingredient, reclaim the category from candy makers who had since transformed a very simple snack into something disguised as fruit, but really was candy, uh, whether it was a gummy or a roll up or, you know, um, added sugar and that felt like a big enough idea to go after. The notion of the rind and why it all came together with in, in sort of in this one big concept was a lesson that I had learned from my great grandmother. Her name was Helen Seitner. She was a matriarch in the family and I, she lived to a hundred. So I really did get to know her as a kid. And when someone lives to a hundred, you pay attention. And she was a, a picture of vitality, even into those into those late 90s. And she used to tell us stories about her own health food store that she owned and operated in the 20s and 30s in Michigan. And I wanted to learn more. I was just riveted by her story. That's awesome. That's that's um, that's amazing. Um, uh, and I totally agree. I mean, when, when somebody lives to 100, you, um, you certainly pay attention because that is um, an incredible, inc I mean, that's incredible longevity, in incredible life in terms of being able to live to that. Um, so, which which fruits did you did you um, do you want to explore as the first um, as a uh, um, first and um, and how did you also think about how many how many SKUs to actually launch with? Yeah, what I wanted to also do in terms of being unique and not you know by, by focusing on the the skin of the fruit, the rind, which had been overlooked, um, that was differentiator number one. You know, number two was use different fruits that historically haven't been dehydrated at scale. Um, a lot of the dried fruit category is full of, you know, easy to process, cheap inputs, whether it's dried cranberries, raisins, again, nothing against this, but against them, but a lot of them, they add sugar to, to lower the ratio of fruit to other ingredient and make it cheaper, easier, and faster to make. And so what I was missing in one of those cross currents that I believed was going to be big was a younger consumer coming up that was going to seek out big, bold, exciting flavors that were not overly sweet. I, I felt like there was a pendulum shift happening in consumer taste profiles away from super sweet and artificial toward tangy. And, and sour and bittersweet. And you're starting to, it's, it's playing out. 
maybe it's because that entire generation has grown up putting sriracha hot sauce on everything, but they are looking for a, a tang, a punch in the face for their taste buds with their traditionally sweet snacks. I have found, you know, Seth Goldman's honest tea, just a tad sweet was a revelation back then. And now that's where like all teas start. In fact, original honest tea formulation is probably too sweet now at 70 calories. So that's, that was where I knew I wanted to be. And so long way of saying, I wanted to use fruits that hadn't been done before that were a little tart, that were a little tangy, things like citrus, so beautiful uh, West Coast citrus, whether it's pomelo, whether it's um, Valencia oranges, uh, grapefruit. I really wanted to experiment with these beautiful big slices that I was starting to see dehydrated on the end of a craft cocktail and wondered, could there be a snack? Could I focus on the garnish and not the liquid and make it that into a snack? I also loved melon. I wanted a lot of you know, I dried watermelon and yeah. And it's like, you can't back, you know, a couple of years ago, you couldn't find dried watermelon. You really still can't. So that's how it all began. And I was doing it. I bought a, you know, somewhere in between a home dehydrator and a low grade commercial dehydrator for my apartment building. And it sucked up a lot of power. I got a lot of crazy looks from the co-op board, but I, you know, I barreled ahead with this idea and created a lot of stuff in that first year. So you were actually kind of um, so what was that process like, um, since you were, seems like you were like self-producing in terms of, or using your apartment, um, as, um, to actually test and, and to iterate on the product. Can you talk a little bit about like that process in terms of what you actually buying on the fruit side? Yeah. I mean, I was buying a lot of weird fruit. <laughs> um, I grew up in South Florida and it was like a paradise of tropical fruits. And it's just an embarrassment of riches from, from that perspective. And there were a couple companies that have a direct to consumer business where they're shipping like overnight exotic fruits that are grown uh, either in South Florida or brought in from like Central America. And that, a lot of that initial raw material was what I was using to make really interesting exotic dried fruit, whether it was more of a jerky before it was like uh, what, before it was crispy or before it had a little less moisture. And I was just slicing it on a mandolin. And I was just figuring, I didn't, there was no playbook. I just figured, let me learn how to operate a food dehydrator and take high quality fruit, keep as much of the skin intact. And that was, that concept was there and dehydrate these at low temps for long periods of time, low and slow, like in some cases, 16, 18, 24 hours. And the aromas in the apartment were incredible. And the yield was tiny. <laughs> so I dehydrate a watermelon and I'd end up with like a cupful <laughs> of little watermelon triangles. But holy smokes, the flavor was incredible. And right away, I was like, why can't I get this at every Whole Foods in America right now? This is a snack that I believed lots of people would tap into. It has a, like a pizza crust from the inner rind. It's like got a nice handle. Like, man, I wanted that for myself. And that's kind of how I started and, and made it around that. So what, um, at what point, um, obviously, did you like find, did you, I guess, figure out like what plate, what like um, maybe like perfect or, you know, enjoy the product to a point where you actually took it to a co-manufacturer and like, how did you also find like the right, the right co-man? Yeah. So what I knew is I had to get out of my get get out of this production in the in the apartment, <laughs> uh, or I'd be or I'd be kicked out of the building. And um, so I started putting pieces of a puzzle together. It was what I was doing as an analyst in many ways. It was just research. And I called all sorts of companies. A lot of them ended up being in the Central Valley, California region. Like they call it the fruit salad bowl of the country. And uh, I would start attending these trade shows that I'd always gone to as an investor, trend spotting. And I would start to say, I'm going to go to the halls that are less exciting and buzzy. I'm going to go to the ones where there's some suppliers. Um, or I would start going to the supply side shows. And I would want, I wanted to find uh, grower partners, dehydration experts who made premium, amazing dried fruit that I could talk to and see if we could develop custom specs, try different fruits. 
And I found that after, you know, about six to nine months of research and dialing and visiting, and um, that was all done in the, the second half of 2017. That was kind of the product development period. I told them what I was making in small batches and what I would love to see if they could, you know, if they could handle that at a larger scale. And one door, as you know, leads to another, leads to another. Um, putting the pieces of that puzzle together was its own adrenaline rush as well. Uh, so everything came together where I was able to identify an amazing supplier that could support initial launch of three SKUs, to answer your question. Um, that seemed to be the magic number and advice I was getting. I found an amazing co-man who could provide me with just the bare minimum of line time um, that I was willing to invest in. And then I found an amazing design team um, through a referral that was able to help bring the idea to life. And I scheduled all of that in one weekend um, in January of 2018 when the Fancy Food Show was happening in San Francisco. And I left the show and started to do my own thing. That's awesome. That's um, uh, that's great. And um, no, I, I appreciate you also mentioning like, how many SKUs you launch with a three? It's so funny. I don't know if you know Paul Vogue from uh, Ourobora, but um, it was so funny because I would just got off of doing like a webinar with him, and he was saying that one of his uh, mistakes that he made from the very beginning was launching with five SKUs, and so and of course you know the retail side of it, the retailers really when you when you kind of come in like they kind of want three, and so um, some retailers will want you know three of this SKU or three of that SKU or or what have you. And he said it became like a whole operations nightmare because it's like, okay, we got three here and we have like a different set of three here and what have you. And so um makes a lot of sense um, um in terms of like launching with three. And and were you able to get like when when that first bodega wanted you in their store, were were you able to get all three in that store? Yes, I was. Um it was great. I was able to like sell it in. It was my first brand block. I started to appreciate the power of merchandising and projecting bigger than you than you are, um, and then growing into that reality. Um, I learned so much, Paul is right, you know, the operational snafus you make when you don't know anything and try to then re-architect it, um, is, is, how you, is how you learn. And I remember the co-man, because it was easier for them, we're just packing these out in 20 unit cases. And the first few accounts I was opening didn't really care that they were 20 units, but as I was starting to graduate into more sophisticated retailers and chains, they're like, I, nobody has 20 units per case. Everything needs to be like divisible by 12. You either need a 12 count case or a six count case or a 24 count case. It's like, you get rid of this 20. I was like, oh, okay, like, that makes sense. So yeah, it's just like, hey, let me let me switch that up. Let me do this, let me do that. And um, you just learn through getting punched in the face. Um, but when you're when you're small and um, you're figuring it all out, there's no mistake that can really be fatal because there's no base to, to really to do anything with yet. You're just saying it's like figuring out feasibility and viability in those first few months. So I guess back to when you got into that first bodega and you're figuring out, okay, like great, I got a sale. This is amazing, incredible adrenaline. I, I can't even imagine what that feels like. How did you then think about pricing your product overall? Did you, what was it actually going through and seeing, okay, in, in the category, um, how other people are pricing it? Okay, I'm going to price mine maybe a bit higher just because maybe, maybe in terms of like the ingredients that I'm using, it's a lot more premium. It's, it's obviously less sugar. How was, how did you think about price overall? Yeah, that's a great question. It's where I, this is where having some underpinning of, you know, a research analyst position for the last two decades came in handy because I was familiar with the various layers of sort of the retail supply chain and each uh, each layer of, of margin and, um, and fee, if you will, that had to be extracted before, you know, you saw anything as a manufacturer. I understood how grocery products at a high level went from you know a facility in transit to a distributor uh, and the distributor to a retail customer and the retail customer to the end customer and there was a markup along the way and so i had to work backwards and appreciate that 
whatever pricing I, wholesale I was going to provide, I needed to build in the appropriate level of margin and cushion for each player in the field, even though in the beginning there was no distributor. I was self-distributing. So I was able to price a little bit higher um, because there was no middleman. I didn't need to pad the margin and still offer a really good markup and margin for a New York City bodega, you know, get them to 50% plus. But I knew that I could also live with giving up a margin eventually to a distributor, which is how this would broaden out and scale. So I knew really where kind of my like my line in the sand was where if I went below this, then I'd have a hard time with the raw materials I was using ever having a viable future. So that was intuitive. I was able to like pencil that out. Uh, it was a, still that shock when they were like, what does this cost? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, let me, let me get back to you with, let me see what I have in inventory, which was in the basement, basement of my apartment. How building. many units, how, how many units do I have? Let's just take like, like how much should I pay? Let's say like, like, like the total price of that and divide it by, you know, <laughs> let me call my ops team real quick. Like, okay. <laughs> pencil, pencil paper, like whatever. So anyways, yes, I think it's really important to have had that grounding going in. And then, um, yeah, there's just so much, there's so many pitfalls for early stage entrepreneurs to get hosed. And, and But what I also knew is you're right, starting out premium, it may not be for everybody depending on what they're making, but I do think you can always work your way down through scale, value engineering, et cetera. You can't really work your way up. So you better start as an aspirational product that's still affordable but distances yourself from becoming a commodity. Well, that's what also, when I talk to investors too, um, and this is maybe not as relevant for, for, for food and beverage, but uh, when I was talking to a couple like beauty and personal care focused investors, they were saying how it's that they, they, they might look at a company, let's say that has done really well online, um, kind of direct sales um, straight to consumers. Um, but in terms of what their margin profile is, it wouldn't actually work when you actually go wholesale and it wouldn't work if you did it. So you'd have to actually, you know, raise your prices to do that. And unfortunately, like a lot of like the buyer, I mean, obviously like, you know, like, like a snack brand, I mean, like the, the overwhelming majority of your sales, I'd imagine would, would come through retail. So that, that kind of has to be, um, thought of from like the very beginning, but that what all that that's what also can be sometimes like dangerous. Um, starting online, um, not so much like um, dangerous might be the, the the wrong term, but factoring into what those all these kind of like other costs when you actually go wholesale um, and actually become like more of like a B two B business, what that actually is. Um, whereas when you started, it's just like hey, we started D 2 C, not really thinking about that long term because like why would you? You know, you're just trying to see if you actually if you actually can actually um, uh, sell something. Exactly. And, you know, when I talk to a lot of other entrepreneurs, I, I love this ecosystem. I love, you know, being a mentor to the extent people want to listen to me. Uh, you know, what I think is really amazing is I'm seeing more and more brands that just for that reason, some founders will say, well, I don't want to be benchmarked against anything else, right? Because then whatever price I think is the right price for this product, I'll always have an analog that sort of is an anchor that says, well, you're a dollar fifty above this exact substitute or whatever. So instead of being a substitute product, don't seek to be the best right away. Be the only. Like be a product that doesn't really exist, doesn't fit neatly in a category. A lot of higher risk reward, but if you pioneer a category, and by the way, we didn't reinvent dried fruit. It had been around forever, but our slight emphasis and point of differentiation around the rind allowed us to, I believe, live at a premium where the rind imparted unique benefits that peeled fruit lacked, like higher fiber, higher vitamin C, less food waste. And that is a benefit. And therefore, there really wasn't something quite like this. Even if other products kept a little bit of the rind, it was an afterthought for them. And it was the hero for us. This episode is brought to you by Propeller Industries. If you run a high growth business and you're focused on profitability, extending your runway and improving your operational efficiency, you probably need a finance and accounting whiz that will grow with you. 
Well, instead of hiring someone full-time, what would be cost-effective is working with Propeller Industries. Propeller Industries is a leading strategic finance and accounting partner for venture stage companies and has partnered with over 1,000 startups and high-growth businesses across consumer products, consumer tech, and enterprise. Some of the brands that they've worked with are Liquid Death, Olipop, Hims, Farmer's Dog, Away, Movie Pass, and Giphy. Propeller also provides specialized support for fundraising and M&A with transaction advisory services. Propeller's TA team of former investment bankers and investors can step in on more of a project basis when pursuing full-scale financing and M&A. There's a link to Propeller Industries in the show notes if you want to learn more information. Part of the challenge when you do have a differentiated product, right? I mean, on one hand, amazing, like your product is differentiated. But then part of the challenge is too is is actually educating the consumer on why your product is differentiated and why, for example, you know, when you think of a fruit, an underappreciated area, you know, of that fruit is the peel that actually has most nutrients of it and kind of educating that consumer from that standpoint. What was your approach when it comes to consumer education? Uh, a lot of demos, a lot of trial and error, back to, back to getting your hands wet. You know, a lot of people would first look at this and there was a real, I quickly saw a, a, a generation gap emerged where, um, you know, younger consumers were like, oh, give me that. Like, I'll, I'll eat anything. I will eat, give me the skin, give me the seeds, give me the pit, ah, whatever. And sort of the middle tier was like, do I eat this? Like, is this potpourri? Like, what do I do with this? And then there was like people of my, you know, great grandmother's era who were like, of course you eat it with the rind on. You let nothing go to waste. So I had this like, okay, on one end of the spectrum is like all these old school people who, you know, as a product of the Great Depression, letting any food go to waste was like a sin let alone the best part. And then you had this adventure seeking youthful group, which was gonna be the consumers of the future who were coming up looking for tart, tangy and bold and benefit. And I was like, okay, I wanna be you know, on that side. I feel like that is what's coming back. And what I found back to the beginning was that lots of other people that tried it would say, I had a figure in my life or in our family who also preached the power of the peel, whether it was a grandmother, a great grandmother, like I've heard this story before. And I love that because I think that helps get over the education hump really fast. Um, our product is, is pretty obvious. It is single ingredient, whole fruit with the skin on. So there isn't much education on the ingredient panel, like, you know, I don't need to spell erythritol for somebody and be like, well, how do you spell this? You know, they're just like, you know, this is fruit. We keep the skin on. Therefore, we maximize all the nutrition and minimize the waste. And they're like, okay, I get it. Or I had, you know, my mom always told me to do that or never to, you know. So, but what hadn't been done was that with really tart and tangy fruits like citrus, like oranges. Most people wouldn't crush an orange fresh the way you would an apple. So they'd had skin on apples. That was like, again, I, they'd look at me and be like, of course you get skin on. But I was like, now do that with an orange, with a lime, with a lemon. They're like, mm, that's a bridge too far. And I said, not when you dehydrate it and turn it into an approachable snack. It mellows it out. Um, it creates a crisp. And that's where I think it was like, all right, that's where it was a new idea. No, that's 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 so interesting. Um, how so the first two years i know that you this is kind of a side hustle um uh thing for you um this is not you know the, the full-time gig i believe you were still working in finance for those first two years um talk to me a little bit about like the growth for those uh for those two years how you spent your time um i'd imagine I, I'd imagine on the weekends, I can see you going into stores and kind of doing a lot of sampling um, in stores to actually get your product in. But how did you approach getting your product, I guess, uh, more in stores during those two years when this was a side hustle? And then also, at what like at what point did you realize, okay, this is real. I'm going in on this full time. And this is kind of the reason why, um, why, why we've kind of like crossed that bridge. Yeah. Those were exciting years. They were torturous years because I was living a double life. And it was, you know, the excitement and thrill and rush I was getting from opening up new accounts, creating a new product, 
getting direct feedback from a consumer, trying your brand for the first time in a demo. It just trounced any anything I was doing in my professional career at the time, which was, you know, which was work. I love the work. I was around really bright people. I enjoyed it. But getting a stock right versus building a company is a very different experience. And I, you know, energy flows where, where the mind goes. And all of my time was spent, the more I was feeding the beast into Ride. And the, the, the synthesis of that is when the world collided was at a trade show in New York City that I'd always dreamed of, of presenting at or exhibiting at, which is the Summer Fancy Food Show, um, which is all just amazing and is here in New York City at the Javits Center. And I was able to get a booth. I was like, uh, the pavilion was like uh, new brands on the shelf, or I wanted to say new kids on the block, but we really were the new kids on the block. And I stayed up like all night when that opened so I could get the very first, you know, shot at the best real estate of that aisle. I got one on the end. This was the summer of 18. Um, and I brought out all my products. My wife and I manned the booth. I split my time. So I was coming from Midtown Manhattan from my day job to come and man the booth. Uh, I took one day off from work to do like vacation. And it was just like, I can't, it felt like I was like taking off a suit and putting on, you know, an entrepreneur. It was just, I, it was untenable. And I quickly realized I was, I was most excited and most geared toward building that I had to be true to that. I had to be true to it for my employer and be fair and, and tell them what I'd been up to and um, be true to my family who would, you know, make sure they would support me in doing this at a different stage in my life. By that point, by the way, I had two children and now, and three after that. And most people at this stage in their life are not as, are, are more risk averse. And I was doing the opposite. And um, it was a tough, tough decision, but being able to experience the momentum of the first two years gave me enough confidence that it would have been a bigger risk to stay safe and not make the leap. Was, was there also like a, um, a point there where, you know, you happen to like get into like a bigger account that you feel like, okay. Or maybe, I don't know how you were also like financing the business was like self-finance and you thought, okay, maybe I need to, to try to raise, raise an equity round or, 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 or take out or, or take on debt where like, this is going to become like, like the big thing. All self-finance those first two and a half years, um, which was a lot. I, you know, um, I'd obviously set aside some of, you know, my future savings to put in bet on myself, but, um, you know, once you're in it, it's hard to. It's hard to go back. Yeah, the 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 absolute like you know line in the sand moment happened at that same show in 2018, and I found putting yourself out there when you don't know what you're doing, and seeing what magic can come out is how you know is how you get started. It's like the spark of the fire, and I believe in trade shows and the power of that to do that. And there were two encounters I had at that show that catapulted us into existence and got Rind off to its start. One was um, we had a lot of interest from uh, a very interesting woman who had her name tag flipped toward her. And so right away, you knew there was like a high, high value target, doesn't want to be known. And she doubled back. She had tried the product and she came back for some more. And I recognized her and it was Florence Fabricant, who's the head food writer for the New York Times. And I loved that she was checking out this like new new brand pavilion for seeing what's new. This is kind of what she writes about. She has a column called Front Burner in the Times. And I said, oh, can I give you some samples or whatever? And she said something to me, I think along the lines of, uh, I like what you're doing. You know who I am. You know how to get me samples. <laughs> and so like right after the show, I put together a care package and I went to the Times building, like, like the next day. And I was like, I just go up to reception and say, yeah, I have a package here for Florence Fabricant. They're like, give an appointment. I was like, mm, no. Uh, and they're like, do you have a, another contact besides Florence? I was like, nope. So I called her up, an intern came down, took the package 
And two months later, they called me for a spell check and we were in the New York Times when I was still side hustling. That was a big blow, blow the door open moment. And then the other was at the same show, Whole Foods stopped by the booth and said, we really like this. Are you set up with a distributor? And it's like, okay, time to, time to get real. <laughs> so. That's what a line too from, from Florence. I mean, that's so, <laughs> so badass. That's awesome. That's so awesome. It is, yeah. um, can you talk a little bit about like the New York times piece? What did that do for, for Ryan? Was that like a massive boost in terms of like helping you into retail or in, into different accounts or, or was that big in other ways? Like what did that do for you on the, on the, on the press side of things? So we had had at that point, pretty much just like an online Shopify site, Amazon marketplace and a smattering of bodegas that I was self-distributing cases to out of that initial inventory run. Um, and so what this did was I quickly saw, wow, like this sparked a big surge in online sales. So that was one thing right away. It's like, wow, I'm going to get a lot of trial here. And that was really exciting. It was like, it really, and then I got a lot of inbounds about, I can't find your stuff anywhere. When you're in the New York Times and they're like, I'd like to try and stock my store with this or my cheese shop or my, it's like, dude, do you even have a business? Like what is going on here? And I was like, okay, I really need to, I should have planned for it, but I could only satisfy the online demand. And so it really was an epiphany of like, okay, let's build the beginnings of a real omni-channel business here. Let me figure out the kinds of channels I want to start with that I think are the early adopters who would really embrace a product like this and then have a couple different shots on goal and, and see what was lean into what was working best, what was most profitable, what was lower cost. So um, it, again, I, I call it the messy middle. You just got to, through experience, try a lot of different things. And sometimes you'll get a lucky break like we did. And you'll find, you'll find a way to go based on those lucky breaks. And you won't have all the answers at the ready, but you can be agile enough to capitalize on uh, and benefit from that nascent demand. I guess the result was from your time is kind of yes and everything in terms of how it actually helped. Online, um, uh, online you saw a, a, a incredible bump there. And as well as, you know, retailers or people kind of, asking you, Hey, like, I can't find you even like anywhere in the distributors, like in my city or, or, or what have you. So how can we kind of make this happen in terms of actually get, get your product out there? Um, was that, was that still, by the way, when you had like three SKUs? Yeah, it was just three SKUs. What I did know was the biggest thing it became was a calling card. Like being in the New York times, even when you are more brand than business, uh, is, is incredibly credibilizing even when you're not quite there yet. It was enough of a stamp and like an imprimatur that like, this is interesting. You know, my readers are, my epicurious foodies would want to know more about this. And this pairs really well with craft cocktails. And this pairs really well on a charcuterie board. It's pretty basic, you know, it's a concept, but it's also a snack. It's got versatility. So I was able to take that incredible exposure um, and article and just a snippet and use that as a calling card it certainly helps to go into a specialty cheese ch shop chain or whatever and say as seen in last week's new york times you got to bring in the the hottest new fruit snack it greased a lot of wheels yeah no that's 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 awesome um and i mean on the dc side i know we've like talked you know um mostly about retail wholesale but on the dc side how do you view or think of that channel because um, or I guess D2C and, and Amazon, just maybe e-commerce e in general, just because, you know, for, for a snack brand, it'll probably never be like the majority, um, of the majority of your sales. It's probably going to be all, or, or always a minority. You probably want people to maybe buy your product more in stores than, than, um, uh, than online, um, to obviously like keep those velocities up, um, and everything. But how, how do you kind of think about e-commerce in general and in terms of like your approach? I think to win in a very competitive consumer, you know, snack space, you have to meet your consumer wherever they shop, which is if you're not making it as easy as possible for them, they may discover you on a shelf, but 
they may choose to subscribe and save on Amazon. And if you're not there and you have that split second, you've lost them and they'll find another snack. It's, it's sad to say that, you know, you'll still stick out of their mind, like, man, that rhymes with different, I can't find it. But you have to create fewer points of friction. And it felt like, you know, just, you had to be everywhere uh, within reason. And we, we learned a lot launching right into COVID. So when I left my career, it was like February, 2020. It was like, okay, you know, it was quite, a, quite, a, quite an awakening and uh, to take a huge career risk. Um, what we found was we didn't have a choice. Retail dried up quickly. We needed to have online platforms, whether it was our own site, whether it was marketplaces, whether it was grocery subscription boxes, like all new ways of getting your groceries was happening and changing in real time in the beginning of, you know, it, by March to June, you know, it, it was a huge period for pantry load and grocery shelves were prioritizing everything, you know, cleaning supply and Purell and anything snack was being bought online. And so, we learned a lot in those early in that in those early months that we really did need to be a diversified channel business what i'd say the single biggest uh reason or benefit we get from online today is r d uh our super fans our power users are the ones who um reach out to us who are have placed the you know 78 orders with us have a lifetime value of several thousand dollars and just keep coming back and even though our distribution is really broadened out at the same time and they will tell you what they like and what they don't like and it's a really powerful lever to uh incubate new ideas off of and we've launched things that are limited edition and we'll have one fan that will write to you every Tuesday, bring back Island Blend. Like this needs to be, and then you're, and you'll get like lots of those. And you're like, huh, I guess we're missing out on something with this kind of flavor profile. And so I love using it for leaning in and speaking to our absolute super fans and getting insights, you know, at no cost from them through very simple emails, providing them access to special deals. You know, Paul does this phenomenally well at Ourobora, but if they're taking the time and they're that loyal, uh, they will tell you and reveal a lot of ways you can take your company because they're, they're the ones that are really helping you. And then, and then you can take that data um, if it's done, if like the product has performed really well to a retailer, for example, um, and say, hey, like, we got we, we to gotta start um, I'm setting up with this. Um, Paul talked a little bit about how you can even like, a, a great a, a great kind of thing you can say is hey we'll we'll do like a, a, a exclusive with you on this particular you know flavor or um or product um to kind of as a test um to actually to actually get get that product first into retail so um it's also here's the one mistake i made in doing all this though so naive on the back of every bag in the first run i wanted to get that so i had i uh an email address that went directly to me uh, so I had my own and then I had like a hello at, and I put a Google phone number that was like 802-828 rind, which called my cell phone, forwarded to my cell phone. And I was like, what could, what could possibly go wrong? And it was effectively like putting your direct number and your email on every bag and then expecting you know, the occasional complaint or compliment or whatever. That was a wild time. I had to change phone. I had to like change my phone number, divert this. And I was like, I still wanted to read every consumer email that came in. And I am a big believer in founders making sure they do that. So they're not, you know, they're not unaware of any blind spots, but phone number, do not do that. What was, what was the biggest, biggest, um, critique in the beginning a product that is sour or tangy that's his, traditionally very sweet right when you dry fruit you're concentrating the sugars um so like a date or a fig or a you know, a, pr a prune like those are those are delicious and sweet or, or a apricot oranges are like you puckering 
and they're not for everybody and they can be polarizing. It's why in like our tropical blend, which was one of the first three, we paired it with something that was naturally sweeter, like a pineapple. But we also really surprised them with an orange and a kiwi, which was somewhere in between the sweet and sour. And they'd never had a kiwi dried and they'd certainly never had it with the fuzz still on, which is a ton of nutritional benefits. So we had those early adopters who were like, I have never had anything like this before and I loved it. I want more of it. And then we had others that was like, this was not what I expected, right? I thought from the packaging, this was gonna be sweet. This was gonna be more, but that's because their palate had been conditioned to more of a candy-fied fruit snack. And this was anything but that. This was the real deal. And so that's all. It was just like, you've started to know, it, it went from polarizing as a bad thing to polarizing as a good thing. If you're polarizing, you're doing something different. You're not getting stuck in the middle and brushed you know, as a commodity. You are appealing to somebody specific. And from that, you can broaden out. And we did. And our best-selling SKU now doesn't have citrus. It's got strawberries, pears, and apples. But we didn't start with that SKU. That was our fourth SKU. Oh, that's interesting. How how the four skew actually became the best seller, not one of the first three. Yep. Yep. We we learned a lot. And you just learn from here listening to your customers and doing a lot of, you know, listening to your gut, your instincts, and um and just being relentless. You have to be relentless. My final question for you is what's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? All right. Let me start with the professional one first. Um I loved a book called range to go see who the author was but range was it spoke to me and the concept is being exposed to sort of a diversity of interests and ideas in other words uh knowing a little bit about a lot which i think is counterintuitive advice to many people who say focus specialize 10,000 hour rule whatever i couldn't do that i had a wandering mind evidenced by switching into a totally new career 20 years in. And I needed to just constantly find things that I was curious about and, and, and dabble in. And I still do that, even though I devote all of my time and effort into the business, I am pursuing uh, other things outside of Rind that become their own passion projects. And I'm finding a way to balance them as imperfectly as one does. But it starts with this idea of range and wanting to know all about different things and, and not feeling like you have to go deep in every one, but having a ton of different interests, a ton of broad networks, uh, a ton of different people in your lives from different walks of life and experiences and all of that, you know, back to like Renaissance Man and all that stuff. I, that book really spoke to me. Um, on the personal side, uh, Ah, that's a good question. So I share the same birthday as Dr. Seuss. And I feel like now that I read my kids, Dr. Seuss all the time, I'm seeing it now through their eyes, which I love. And um, it is pretty timeless. So I feel this kinship with Dr. Seuss because of our shared birthday. And there was one book when I was a kid that I make my kids listen to now called McGilligot's Pool, which nobody, it's like the 84th most known Dr. Seuss book. But to me, it's the most interesting. And it's about a kid who is uh, fishing at a little watering hole uh, by his house. And all the townspeople are like, you'll never catch anything there. You're a total fool. And so it's all these people that are like saying, you don't stand a chance now that I think about it as like a bigger metaphor. And the story that unfolds is underneath this kid's bait and hook where there's a, a empty bottle and can and boot and all this stuff that's not interesting. It connects to a world of the most incredible aquatic life and fish that are all racing toward this kid's worm, right? And he is, if he were to have given up and listened to conventional wisdom, he would have missed out so he sticks to his guns, but you're left with this, like, will he continue to fish and see if he'll get a bite? Or will he give in to all this, all these people who are telling him, you know, give it up. 
So as I think about that and what I'm doing, uh, the ability to stick with it, believe in yourself, do something different and be patient. Uh, that book looms large, McGilligot's Pool. McGilligot's Pool. I'll, I'll be honest. I read my kids Dr. Seuss every night, but I actually haven't heard of that one. Um, they're, they're, they're still, they're going to yeah, love it. I'm, um, they're, I, they're, uh, I have a, um, I have a two-year-old and a six-month-old, so um, uh, so they they got a little time to uh, uh, to, uh, to understand everything. But that sounds great. That's awesome. Um, really excited. Send it, sending you yeah, a link. Appreciate that. Um, this is this is great. Range has been mentioned a few times, but uh, but Matt, like I don't think anyone. Uh, I think we had one person mention um, Doctor Seuss before, but uh, but not this book. So that's that's great. You're you're very original, Matt. Um, thanks so much. Thanks so much for your time, Matt. And I really appreciate you sticking around and, and, and going over. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me and for the great work you do on your podcast. Thank you. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Matt on the podcast. Matt, thanks again for coming on. If you're enjoying this show, I highly recommend checking out the newsletter at theconsumerbc.com. You'll receive all new, all new updates when it comes to fundraising each week and as well as notifications when each new episode drops. Thanks for listening. 